Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Guess what? The Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club's price has dropped. Now it's $150 for six bottles. That's $25 on average a bottle for wines of amazing quality. WineAccess.com slash WFMP. Listen in the middle of the show for more details and get on that website today. Today's guest is Eva Martinelli. She is a young innovative, experienced winemaker, and she's originally from Lucca in Tuscany. She has a degree in enology. She has a deep understanding of the terroir of the Chianti Classico region, and she has an unrivaled passion for this very historic region. She's worked harvests in new and old world countries and returned home to the Chianti Classico region to follow her dream of being a winemaker. Now, I met Ava in May. She works for a very historic, large winery, giving tours and managing the sales and tourism for that big winery. The patrons and I who visited her loved her. We learned so many new things about Chianti Classico from her and found her different from all the other guides that we had. She actually knows how to make wine, grow grapes, and she's done it. But The question I had for her was, why are you not a winemaker when you have all these skills? And in this show, which I recorded this intro after because I wanted to see how things would develop, and it was even better than I thought because Ava comes on as a really knowledgeable voice on Chianti Classico and probably the most honest voice I've heard about the struggle of young, talented winemakers in Chianti Classico and other parts of Italy for that matter. The conversation is half education on the region of Chianti Classico and half a deep dive into some of the major structural issues Italy has in making opportunities for young, talented people who do not come from winemaking families. This podcast is eye-opening, and sometimes it's even a little bit sad. Ava is the kind of person I love to have on. She's not who you're going to hear on another show. She is not who you're going to see written about in wine rags. She's somebody with no brand agenda or marketing BS to give us. I hope that you love listening to this as much as I did. It's a show that I will continue to reference. I am going to remember it for years to come, and I hope that you do too. Now let's get to the show. Ava, thank you so much for being here and for joining us. It was such a pleasure to meet you when we were in Chianti Classico. I would love to start out with you just telling us about you and your background in wine and how you got into this. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Uh, So everything started back in uh, 2012 when I graduated in winemaking. Then, of course, I tried to send my resume all over the place uh, Mostly, I didn't get any response, so I was just How can wondering. That be? <laughs> yeah, it could be in Italy with things happening, winemaking. So I just try with another job, and at the end, uh, yeah, I decided, okay, why don't I apply to a job overseas? And luckily, at the end of 2013, I did an interview with a winery in Australia, in the Yarra Valley, 
And I was really happy because it was a part of uh, Moe Chandon. So it was Domain Chandon in Australia. So I just pack my things and go there for the harvest and see how it goes. And then I was, I started traveling around and do my job, basically. Right. So both in 14 and 15, I've done the two vintages, one in the Southern Hemisphere, the other one in the Northern Hemisphere, both Australia and, uh, and France. Do you speak French? Yes. Where in France did you go? In the in the unlucky part of the Rhone River, because uh, as you know, there is a Chateauneuf de Pape, right. and on the other side of the river, there are also wineries as well that basically are the same in terms of uh, soil, microclimate, but of course, they're much less expensive than Chateauneuf de Pape. Oh, they're such great wines. So yes, yes, there's so many great producers. It just depends on the producer, you know? Yes, and then they're making very amazing wine over there. In Chateauneuf de Pape as well. Huh? <laughs> sometimes and sometimes not. There's that whole stretch of Chateauneuf de Pape that's right next to the highway. I don't yeah. think that's very good wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And and as I work in New Zealand, this is, I think, the biggest experience I've ever done because I was in charge myself of all the red fermentation, which were huge because they were like, uh, I don't know how many thousand tons so we have done oh my gosh and so I need to manage my team alone and I need to form the people to be with me in the harvest and there were people that have never done an harvest before so it has been really challenging it was a lot of fun and after in 2016 I was back to Italy I started back because I did my internship also in Chianti Classico I started back here in Tuscany and you're from Livorno right Right. Uh, Luca. Luca, I knew it was new somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luca, Luca born and raised in Tuscany, not in the best wine region ever of Tuscany. <laughs> you came back because this is your home. What did you do after you got back? I mean, you had had all of these international experiences and now you're back in this very traditional region. Yeah. This so is, what, uh, what happens now? This has been challenging as well. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, and especially so, as a woman of all of the regions that, at least in my observations, Barolo and Barbarasco have a lot of female winemakers. Sicily has a bunch of female winemakers. Mm -hmm. And then you have Chianti and Tuscany in general, it seems a little bit behind in terms of women in wine. Am I wrong about that? Uh, not completely, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Yes, I tried to work in the production for... Uh, a few years uh, so as assistant winemaker and sell a hand uh, but uh, at some point I just get bored about all the situation so it's really hard uh, for a woman in wine in Tuscany unless uh, you have your own winery to become a winemaker so I struggled to um, to fight hard for that but then at some point I just decided okay let's try something different why don't we do a little bit of sales and learn a little bit more about how to sell wine and how to guide people also in this wine region. And this is why now I'm working in the cellar door, doing tours and as a guide. So here I am. <laughs> You're so good at it because your knowledge is so deep and you have a lot of enthusiasm, but you are here in this incredibly traditional wine region. And 
you have been all over the world now in a lot of new world places where the rules are not as strict. So you teach people every day about Chianti Classico. So what are the things that you think are the most fascinating about the Chianti Classico region? And what are some of the things that we miss? Like, what are the things that you think, why don't more people know about this from a history perspective or even from, well, I want to talk about the terroir because you told us a lot when we met with you about how terroir in Chianti Classico is really not characterized well. But what about from a history perspective? What are the things that you think people should know? I think Chianti Classico is the most historical place all over Italy because it's the first appellation that came out with rules about making good wines in just one good place, which is great. And this started much before then Bettino Ricasoli formulated the recipe of Chianti Classico wine, which was in 1872. This has done much before. In 1716, we came out with the idea of a wine to be done and produced with special rules just in one place. And this was a Chianti Classico region. So it's really fascinating for me, this part, that Chianti Classico has such a, a big history. You know, in, it in Italy, everything is about history. But in this case, it's fascinating because uh, they were much forward than anyone else in Italy at that time. And this, I think, is amazing. This is why I'm always, uh, and you know, <laughs> I'm always proud and saying that we are Chianti Classico, not Chianti, because uh, this makes a big difference. This is one of the things that people should be aware when they're traveling in Chianti Classico. Why don't you talk about that? Because Chianti, it's a big mess. Rufina is probably the only sub zone of actual regular Chianti that's worth exploring. And yet there are just seas and seas of DOCG wine. And I think that's one of the problems too, is that Italy has pushed the idea that DOCG means quality when that's not true. It's not even true within Chianti Classico. There's some producers in Chianti Classico also not making great wine. Yes. Can you get into the difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico from your perspective and really explain why it matters so much? So it matters so much to us because Chianti Classico is the most historical place of Chianti and it's a very small region compared to the rest of Chianti area because Chianti... We have different appellations in Chianti, as you mentioned, and uh, we have uh, appellations starting from Pisa, so northern of Tuscany, going to Siena as well, because there is Chianti Colli Senesi, there is uh, Chianti Colli Aretini, so Arezzo. So basically, it's a very wide area in Tuscany. It compares almost every part of Tuscany, and there are different appellations with different rules. What does it mean for the wine lovers, uh, different rules. And uh, in Chianti Classic, of course, the, we have uh, the stricter rules above all of them. Why? Because uh, everything started here. And so I don't mean that you can also find good uh, quality wine even in other Chianti appellation, but Chianti Classic is uh, 
it has much more value because we have stricter rules in producing wine, which means more attention to detail while producing wine. One example, for instance, is in the original recipe, there was uh, white grapes uh, in Chianti, Classico. Now we are not allowed anymore to put any white mm -hmm. grapes uh, in to Chianti Classico, but San Chianti could put white grape in a red, just to tell one of the, the rules. So it makes a big difference to be in Chianti Classico. It's just eight municipalities between the province of Florence and Siena. So it's a very small area full of history, but also full of high quality wine. Then, of course, as you say, this doesn't mean that uh, you are in Chianti Classico and you drink all good wines. This is not sure. Explain the difference in terroir also, because a lot of the point here is also that the terroir of Chianti Classico is more consistent and it's better than all of the outlying areas. And I think that that is one of the really important things. And I loved when we were in the vineyard with you and you were talking about how everybody simplified the soil types or given names to soil types that are not exactly correct. Can you give us a re-education <laughs> on the terroir of Chianti Classico in specifically because we were talking about the high quality wine, but the reason that it's the traditional area is not just because people said, well, this is a nice place to grow grapes. It's because they actually found that the grapes were better quality there, right? Yeah. Why is the land so much different and better in Chianti Classico than in other regions? Not even just Chianti, but just in the world. There's a reason you went back. It's not just that you were thinking like, oh, I'd like to go home. You could have gone to Montalcino. You could have gone to other places. But Chianti Classico is very special. Chianti Classico for me, but not only for me, is very special because you have much more diversity, not only in terms of the wild so soil and microclimate, but also we have, uh, if you not, I think you notice, uh, compared to other region of Tuscany, we have much more woods around us. And this is very important because they increase the biodiversity of the territory. And so this is one point for us, I mean, because with much more biodiversity, you're going to get more quality, more healthy grapes. Also, the vine can benefit of this biodiversity around. Of course, the soils are very important too. And in Chianti Classico, there are a few, just a few of them, but very different from other areas. There are some soils that have the name Chianti in that, like for instance, Machigno del Chianti. Machigno del Chianti is a sandstone. And of course, the name say itself that it's in Chianti in this area only. We have a different group of soils. The two main ones are the one always misunderstood or misspoken because uh, please yes it, tell us it, tell us the right thing here because this is really interesting we say always galestro or alberese talking about the soil of chianti so galestro and alberese are the name given to the peasants a very long time ago but this 
type of soil. That is not completely true. Maybe it's because uh, my fiancé is, uh, is a geologist that I know that. <laughs> he explains me a lot about uh, the differences here in Chianti. So one of the main soil, which is the one... Uh, I always um, switch them because uh, I never use uh, Galestro or Alberese. So I'm sorry if I just uh, confuse the two, but basically the main soil in Chianti are not only these two, which are basically a limestone-based soil. And the other one is uh, a clay-based soil called Agiliti del Chianti which is called Scaglia Toscana. So Scaglia Toscana means, of course, that it's born in Tuscany. And uh, it means that uh, you have a very fragile rock, which compared to the Macigno del Chianti, it's a more fragile rock. Macigno del Chianti instead, Macigno in Italian means boulder, which means uh, a massive rock, very hard to break, and it's a sandstone. So these two are uh, two of the big group of soils you could have in Chianti. And then we have, of course, uh, these limestone soil, and not only them, because depending on the, on the part you are in Chianti Classical, you can find also different types of soils. A good point for this part, uh, I think it's uh, thanks to Ricasoli, which is one of the biggest producers in Chianti Classico, they were the first one to make a study on soils to see what we have in Chianti Classico. And then uh, all the other wineries follow basically and, and started studying the soil by themselves. And we found out this uh, geology, very different geology from one place to the other in the different part of Chianti Classico. You are not in a flat place. You are in such a hilly place. So each hill and each part of the hill can grow different things. It's so many different microclimates altogether. When we stood up with you and looked at each part of the hill and you look all around you, each hill has a different orientation. It has different soils at the bottom, in the middle, at the top. And I think that that is not well appreciated by the trade or by consumers to understand that the kinds of wines that you're going to get are going to depend on the hills that your vineyards are on, right? I mean, yeah. isn't orientation a big deal too that no one really talks about? I mean, it's a huge part of terroir, but no one talks about it enough. I think more than orientation, it's altitude. Right, there's really high altitude too. Yes, yeah. in Chianti Classico, there are very different wineries on much higher altitudes than normal, like 700, 800, it's quite a lot in a hilly place anyway. Meters, right? Yes, uh, yes, yes, of yes, course, yes. sorry. <laughs> no, I just want, because 700 feet is not very much, but 700 yeah, meters and does. 800 meters is very, very high. It's as high as Montalcino, who talks about their altitude constantly, but Chianti Classico does not do a good job of talking about their altitude. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. It's true. And even going, uh, orientation is important, and even going uh, from uh, the northern part of Chianti Classico to the southeast part, uh, you have completely a different varieties, uh, not only of soil, but also terroir, so microclimate and so on, that uh, not... Uh, 
one Chianti Classico is, is the same as the other and just for that, even in the same small part, because now the Chianti Classico, I think you know that the Chianti Classico Consortium, so the organ that rule all the Chianti Classico production, are introducing the UGA, which are different... MGA, the UGA. <laughs> yes, yes. But it can be helpful if it's meaningful and there aren't too many of them. Barolo and Barbaresco went crazy and the MGAs are almost meaningless except for a couple. So hopefully Chianti Classico tends to be more conservative. Have they done a better job, do you think? Or are there too many? In my opinion, it's right to differentiate the region of Chianti Classico in these two small zones. And this is because they are really different, but it could create confusion of course, in the normal wine drinkers, because what I'm buying basically is that if, unless you have a person that explains you that very well, I think it, this could create much more confusion in the consumer because first Chianti, Chianti Classico, then all these zones. I think they should be very good in marketing that, I mean, in explaining that, because if you're not working in the Chianti Classico and you don't do the tasting as we do, because each place, each municipality of Chianti Classico once per year held a tasting. So everybody could go there. And so we have Rada nel bicchiere for the Rada wine producers. We have Vino al Vino in Panzano for the Panzano producers. We have Pentecoste a Castellina for the people of Castellina and Chianti. So we living in Chianti, we have the chance to try the different ones in the different UGAs. I don't know how much could be possible with the rest of the people. It could be a little bit harder. Like when you were going through the wines with us, I think the important thing is to have people understand that, for instance, in the northern part, of Chianti Classico, you're going to have wines that are fresher. They're going to have better acidity. They're going to be lighter. They're not going to be quite as heavy. And then as you move farther south, you're going to have heavier wines because there's more heat and it does depend on site and the town, but each town has its own thing. I think it's very important that each place let people know the style of wine that they're yeah. producing. And then within that, there's, of course, variation of whether or not you like it. And some of this has to do with another question I want to ask you because you're such a wine dork and I love that, <laughs> is about rootstock and clones. There has been, at least in the wine press, all of this craziness over the 13 or 14 clones of Sangiovese in Chianti Classico that are acceptable and none of the others are. And then the rootstock and all of that and how important it is. Now, I think it probably is pretty accurate because the wines have gotten so much better since they started doing all this research. But what's your opinion? Are there only 13 really great clones or 14 really great clones of Sangiovese? Are there too many clones of Sangiovese? Is it that there's, you know, three main ones that are really pretty great and the rest are okay? You're a winemaker. 
you sell the wine also, and you educate people on it. So you have a hundred percent perspective that you're literally the best person to ask this question to, because you know, whether or not it's BS. Yeah, I think it's true. So it's, uh, but it's, it's not just the clones for sure. It's just a combination of things. And even having a good clones is very important for me. I think it's, uh, they have done us a lot of studies about. So if uh, there was no meaning <laughs> in that, they wouldn't have studied so much about clones and rootstock, right? You never know because like in five years, they could be like, that doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is like <laughs> deep in the earth's core that's making, like, you just never know. <laughs> yes, but it, but the wine has definitely gotten better, and the soil hasn't changed. So something has changed, and I think it's got to be it's got to be the rootstock and the clones, right? I mean, the wine is much better than it used to be in Chianti Classico. Yeah, yeah, and this is a, a good part of that. But also, the changing in the philosophy of the wineries of the single wineries, and it's very important at this stage. And like in the eighties, they all care. Even in Chianti Classical, the people care about quantity, not only quality. Then they just, uh, all of them focus on quality, which is very important. This is why then uh, they change uh, and they decided that maybe even the clones are very important in the all this production and not only them, but uh, they're much more, even the wine producer are much more aware of high quality and wines and now to obtain them. I think this is, could be a point. It's really important. The other thing is the blends and the fact that they're using a lot less French international grapes, call them French grapes because they really are French grapes. Everybody calls them international grapes. They're French grapes. So mm -hmm. you see less influence of Cabernet. There's still some Merlot, which tends to be mild. The Chianti producers, I had read and I brought this up in almost every podcast I've done after the trip that when I saw you, is that I do feel that there was a bit of bias in the press against Italian wines in the 80s and 90s. And everyone, including France, dealt with 30 years of post-war quantity over quality because it was very difficult. You had to get the industry back. It takes a really long time to get mm -hmm. back from a world war, let's face it. Yes. Yeah, so Especially when you're in the battleground, that was very difficult. But then in the eighties, when things started to change and turn around for Chianti Classico, I still feel that it never has gotten the credit that it deserves because Montalcino became the shiny toy. Start. Yeah. And this is the, this is the oldest region and I think that for a long time, the British press decided they were not interested. And then the American press decided that Chianti was those was the fiasco. I think in Montalcino, they were smarter than us, that's for sure. <laughs> because if you have a look at the prices of hectares in Montalcino, they're very different from the one here in Chianti Classico. And I assume that Montalcino is, is smaller anyway than, uh, than Chianti Classico region. So this, this is a point for them because they make things easy. And more than that, uh, I think the wine producers there are more of a group because, of course, it's a smaller area, so they, they could arrange a little bit better. And yeah, I think a lot of years, uh, I think it, we go back to the first point. So even in Italy, 
it's very difficult to let people understand the difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico. Because uh, yes, we are going to Chianti and uh, drinking Chianti. It's not like that. No, <laughs> but no, it's, no. Very, it's very difficult to let them understand. So this is why I think that this is all uh, representing like not the best quality wines in Tuscany. It is true. But well, what about the fact that there are many things that Chianti Classico is unlike Montalcino in, but one of them is that there's lots of different grapes that you can use in the yes, exactly. 15 or 20% that's not Sangiovese. Yes, so exactly. What about those grapes? Are there any that are really great quality that make the wine better? Are people using more Colorino or Chiligiolo? Or do they find that Caneolo is used to be the main grape in Chianti and then it mm. switched to Sangiovese? Is there any excitement around any of those grapes that might have great potential to even elevate Chianti Classico more? In fact, we have a note from the Consorzio Chianti Classico that says that in three years' time, for all the Gran Selezione, so Gran Selezione for the one who, does it, who don't know is the top wine in the Chianti Classico region, so the category of the top wine is called the Gran Selezione, for all these Gran Selezione, we are not allowed to use any more international varieties for blending. So no Merlot, no Cab Sab, only local varieties. I think this is a very important step for the region because, of course, you evaluate again the best grapes we have here in Chianti Classico, not only Sangiovese, of course, which is the king of the grape, but about also these minor local varieties such as Canaiolo, Chile Giolo, Colorino, Pugnitello, which is another very interesting grape. A lot of people didn't know about that, right? Is that revived recently? See, Pugnitello is quite rare to find. There are just a few wineries uh, here in the region uh, growing Punitello. One is pretty big because it's San Felice, and San Felice was the first one to rediscover this grape because they have uh, in the old vines uh, and they found out what it was. One is uh, San Felice, the other one uh, is, uh, and not only them, but this is the one I know for sure they make in Pulitello. One is Fattoria di Montemaggio in Radda Chianti, which is a boutique winery, just the eight hectares, that make also a punitello. They don't use it in the blend of Chianti Classico, but they make a 100% punitello wine. Keep in mind that punitello in Italy is grown just for 30 hectares. So, so it's small. a very, yeah, it's a very, it's like something very, <laughs> very uncommon, very special. But you think it's a good grape and it's got a lot of potential. Yeah, I really love the Punitello wine from Fattoria di Montemaggio. It's completely different grape from Sangiovese. It doesn't give too much acidity to the wine. But of course, this is why it's a good match with also with Sangiovese <laughs> because of that. Yes, it yeah, can exactly. be. I mean, it makes it go so well with food, but it's not <laughs> a wine. I think that's one of the challenges for Italian wines in general, that they're made to go with food. Most of them, you're not just going to pick them up and drink. You need to have something because of the acidity and the tannin and everything else. And that's what makes them beautiful. And that's what makes them truly Italian is that they're food wines. They're wines that you don't just 
chug. <laughs> yeah, we were we were thinking about this last night because we had uh, dinner with a blind tasting uh, with different wines from different regions of the world. So we have a, a few Tempranillo from Spain. We have, of course, the Chianti Classico. We have uh, other wines from the region, from other regions. But in the end, uh, we, we workers in the Chianti Classico still stick with the, the nice, fresh acidity of our because we really love them but of course with food it's one thing without is another story i teased this in the intro to the show but i have got to tell you if you have been on the fence about ordering from the wine access wine for normal people wine club maybe you thought it was a little bit too expensive at 170 dollars for six bottles we have dropped the price it is now 150 dollars. that's 25 dollars per bottle including shipping that's an average bottle price some are worth far more than that and guess what it is just in time for the shipment that was put together by me and Serge Doré. If you are a loyal podcast listener, you have heard Serge on the podcast numerous times. He's an importer in New England. It can be very difficult to find his wines. So here's what we have for you. Join the Wine Access Wine for Normal People Wine Club, and for $150, you are going to get six bottles of wines that Serge and I have picked out for you, and they are spectacular. People have been nothing but pleased with the shipment and the wines that we have provided, and we will continue to do this as long as there is interest in this wine club. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP, wineaccess.com slash WFMP to join the wine club today and get these awesome bottles shipped to you. You will get 10% off your first order. Now is the time to sign up. These wines are limited availability. This is exactly what Wine Access says when they say they provide you access you can't get anywhere else. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Take advantage of this new lower pricing. How often does the price go down on the Wine Club offer? Wineaccess.com slash WFMP. And don't forget, new classes are about to be published. Go to winefornormalpeople.com slash classes. Check it out today and take a basically live podcast with me and a group of really cool people. You buy the wines locally and the class is a few hours. It's for wine dorks who really want to get into the wine with me. Ask questions live. It's a great experience. So grab a friend and join today. Wineforormalpeople.com slash classes. And I will remind you, patreon.com slash wine for normal people to join the community and get a lot of really great information. And you can feel good about the fact that you are supporting this podcast and helping keep us afloat. Patreon.com slash wine for normal people. And now let's get back to the show with Ava Martinelli. The second half of the show is even more riveting than the first. So Chianti Classico is big. There's a lot of different sites. We've talked about this. There's this business side of it where it's so commercialized. There's so many producers and Yes, there's some really great large producers, and they're not even that large in Chianti Classico. In Chianti, yes, they are huge. But in Classico, there's not enough land to really make 5 million cases or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. some of these Chianti producers make. But if we wanted small producers or even bigger producers that represented these different 
terroir that you're talking about, the sandstone, the limestone, the clay, Sangiovese does different things based on where it grows, the types of soil it grows in. And that's another thing, you know, we talk about blends. We're not just talking about blends of, okay, Chidijolo or Colorino or Caneola. We're talking about blends of Sangiovese, but there's inconsistency. How do we get wines of terroir? Because sometimes you'll just get a Chianti Classico and it'll be like, okay, that's, it's clear that it's Sangiovese, but it doesn't really taste like a place. That's really disappointing. So what do we do? Like, what would be your advice? This is a good question. I think, first of all, we need to be aware of the Chianti Classico you find in the supermarket. Yes. First of all, if you come here and go to the supermarket and find, oh, there is a bottle of Chianti Classico at nine euros, let's do it. <laughs> let's buy it. Uh, I think this is the first mistake. I assume it's all Consorzio uh, Chianti Classico's fault because uh, if the consumer could find a Chianti Classico wine with the black rooster on it, the black rooster is the symbol of Chianti Classico, at the supermarket uh, for four, five, six, nine euros, it means that something is getting wrong in protecting this label, right? Yes. Because, uh, of course, uh, the smaller producer... Because you're now finding Brunello for that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, smaller producers here, of course, uh, can't afford and didn't want to be in the supermarket. It doesn't mean that uh, small wineries means uh, high quality Chianti Classico. It doesn't mean that. But, of course, first of all, beware of the one you find in the supermarket. <laughs> okay, so go to a wine shop. But in the territory. In yeah, yes, well, I exactly. Mean, let's say you're anywhere in Italy. There are now some really very nice wine shops everywhere, and you can probably find one. So don't buy it in the supermarket. Yeah, for instance, I live closer to Siena than Florence. And in Siena, for instance, for me, it's a problem to find a good wine shop. <laughs> Because usually they have a very commercial ones in Siena. So if you go in the villages of the Chianti Classico region, so in this eight municipality, anyone has a wine shop and there you would find your favorite Chianti Classico because it's also very subjective. So you need to find the one you like the most. There you should find more high quality Okay, but... Most of the listeners are in the U.S. We have, mm-hmm. then we've got listeners in other English-speaking countries, in the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and in Europe. So what do we do and how do we figure this out? Because we see the same names over and over again, but occasionally there are smaller producers. I find this problem too, and I know a lot about Chianti Classico, is that I wind up buying the same bigger producers because that's what's available. And there are, like we said, there are some very, very good big producers. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But because of the special relationship between Italy and America, there Mm -hmm. are a lot of small producers that have distribution in the U.S. How do we find them? Do we take a risk? Should we look in the Gambero Rosso? Like what's the best place to look? No. You should read the label. By reading the label, I mean uh, just truly read that, not just say, read the the points uh, some journalists give (laughs) to them, or 
or just, okay, this is as a nice label, let's buy it. <laughs> Read behind the label what it's written, for instance. Of course, if they are certified organic, usually it's another way to choose. That doesn't always mean it's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't know the region, you need to take the risk. <laughs> I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on Chianti. I've been there a bunch of times. I still make mistakes sometimes. For me, I mean, now I'm just asking for me and the listeners are going to come along with me on this question and this ride. I know the better big producers, mm -hmm. but I'm always looking to see, can I find somebody who's smaller? Can I find someone who's more interesting? And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, but I still make mistakes in Chianti Classico. I feel like it can be a scary, <laughs> it can be a scary <laughs> thing for a decent Chianti Classico. You're paying at least 20 US dollars. This is not the top wine, but this is just an everyday wine. You're paying 20, 25 US dollars. Sometimes it's really disappointing. <laughs> it's hard for me sometimes to think, okay, how do I do a little bit better? But I'm thinking that maybe these UGAs are going to be super helpful because right now we have no idea who's in Rara or Castellina or Sole yeah. or Greve. Like you don't have any idea. They don't ever say that. So maybe that will actually be a super helpful thing for Chianti Classico, which tends to have bigger problems than like, Barolo and Barbaresco are the size of my pinky. Montalcino is tiny. Montepucciano is even pretty small. Yeah. MGAs, no MGAs, UGAs, whatever. It doesn't matter that much. But I think at Chianti Classico, it's going to have a big difference if they do it right. Don't you think? I mean, that could be our big selling. Yeah, it, it would be helpful. But the people already need to know that Chianti Classico is something different from all other Chiantis. Well, everybody who's listening to this show, A, knows right now. And B, <laughs> if they have ever listened to me ever talk about Chianti, <laughs> yeah. the thing that I always say is never mm. buy wines from the wider Chianti unless it's Rufina. Because Rufina has very high elevation vineyards. And is that a good rule of thumb? Don't buy it from anywhere except if it's Rufina. I would rather go with Chianti Classico and stick Oh, any day. <laughs> any day. So mm -hmm. I would say the last five years for Chianti Classico have been huge. Since you got back, everything has changed. I think it's you. You have made a big difference. <laughs> you have just changed. Your presence there has changed it. But <laughs> Thanks. But I used to tell people, get a Rosa di Montalcino rather than a Chianti Classico because it's safer. And that used to be true. It really did. But that's mm -hmm. not the case anymore. Can you briefly explain what the difference is between Chianti Classico and Montalcino and maybe Montepulciano? If we were to look at these three as things that we either wanted to buy and collect and compare or things that we were thinking, what's the difference between them? Can you give us a description? I mean, Montalcino is clearly a lot warmer. So it is yes, it's like a really different style. Yeah, mm -hmm. really different styles. So Montepulciano and Montalcino, they both uh, souther compared to Chianti Classico. First thing first, both in Montepulciano and Montalcino, microclimate change. Of course, in the single zones, uh, it changes. So in Montalcino, you can find differences as well in between uh, the different territories of Montalcino. But 
Montepulciano e Montalcino are more similar in between the two than Chianti Classico because they're located very close, just uh, 20 minutes drive one from the other. Chianti Classico is a much wider area and it stays northern to Siena, while Montalcino and Montepulciano are located south. This means, of course, in terms of terroir. And also, another thing, uh, there are no woods uh, uh, like here in Montalcino and Montepulciano. So Montalcino and Montepulciano are very similar in terms of landscape. If you go there, you see just vineyards, 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 and not woods. Also, the soil is different because both in Montepulciano and Montalcino, there is uh, much more clay than uh, in Heavier here in the classes. So it makes a difference. Another big difference, of course, is the clone of Sangiovese, because in uh, Montalcino, and I think also in Montepulciano, they, they use a different clones of Sangiovese, and the Sangiovese used in Montalcino is called Sangiovese Grosso. And so it's a difference uh, also. Montepulciano uses Prunolo Gentile, which is yeah, yet exactly. another clone. I think that the wines of Montepulciano tend to be very earthy, like they're kind of dark. They have a darker mm -hmm. note to them. But the acidity, if you're looking for a great food pairing, Chianti Classico is the way to go because it will always have higher acidity no matter where it's yeah. from. And I think that's a huge difference. I really have seen such an improvement. It didn't used to be reliably the case, but I think now those wines are fresher. Even if they are rich in flavor, you can taste the elevation and the more northern location, which I think makes a huge difference. Plus, you have so many clones to choose from. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And of course, if you're looking for rounder, softer Sangiovese, you should go direction Montalcino because, of course, uh, you have much less acidity down there than uh, in Chianti Classico. It's also a matter of, yeah, not only the clone, but also the way of aging them. It's uh, it's very different. Uh, I want to talk about winemaking, but let's talk about climate change for a second because yes. it's hot where you are and mm -hmm. climate change has had an impact on what's going on in Chianti Classico. Can you talk about that? When we met, you told us about some of the ways that you're trying to mitigate climate change and make it a little better. Some of the cover crops, the choices that you've made. Can you share that, please? I think we, we feel the climate change from the harvest 2020. Because it's, until the harvest 19, we have a normal season. For normal seasons, I mean, a right amount of rain, right amount of sun, almost every year have very healthy grapes and so good production due to the fact that we have rain. From 2020, we start experiences much drier and hotter summers. But climate change is just not only that, because, of course, climate change, it could be like this year, for instance, in May, we experience a lot of rain, very unusual here, very cool temperatures. I don't know if you remember. Oh, I remember. I remember. I was so happy that I had every piece of clothing I owned, basically, because... It was hot on the coast and it was freezing in Chianti. It was rainy and unusual, very cold. So the climate change is just not only drought, 
but also these kind of things. So very heavy rains. We have very bad things happening in Emilia-Romagna, which is our closest region with the storms and heavy rains. And this is part of the climate change, of course, in viticulture in this case. In Chianti Classico, we are not allowed to water the vines. So it's one of the rules of Chianti Classico. So the vines couldn't be irrigated unless they are baby vines. I think maybe this would change <laughs> with the time if we continue like that, because uh, last year, the 22, the drought was really impressive here because uh, the summer was really dry and uh, luckily we have uh, rain in the second half of August and the berry grow uh, faster in like two weeks but it's, it's not the best basically. No you want a slow growing season but maybe what they can do is I think in France in the Rhone where you were you can apply for emergency relief. Yeah in vintages where it's terrible and you have to irrigate because the danger is if you allow irrigation every year then people will use it to make their crops bigger but for emergency years where it's not going well i think you're right they're going to have to change it but you were saying that some of the cover crops that people have chosen in chianti classico actually maintain some of the water so have they figured that they out they can keep water to maintain uh, cover crops is mainly used uh, also for give nutrients uh, to the soil back before the growing season. So we used to have cover crops uh, all over the place in springtime in Chianti, especially because uh, even if uh, not all the wineries are certified organic, but all almost all of them are following sustainable way of viticulture. And one is these cover crops that also maintain a little bit the soil moist. Another thing we do and we started apply in this region is while before we used to uncover the grapes uh, while they were going and they're getting ripe. Now we just leave the leaves on top of them just to avoid uh, with the drought uh, problems of some barn because even the grapes could yes. have these uh, issues. Of no, the shade definitely not taking all of the leaves off is we know this, we're humans, we have skin, so you can get burned. The grapes can also get burned from that. They're dealing with it, but it's a Mediterranean climate. It doesn't rain that much anyway, but now it's gotten much more dramatic. Is it still getting cool at night though? Are the diurnal temperature yeah. swings still yeah, there? Yeah, this is so uh, one, one advantage point here because usually we have a Good difference in between the night and day, which is very important for all the crops, not only grapes, but mainly them. And this is very important. For instance, we're going to have 30 degrees Celsius in, in the morning, uh, in, in during the day, uh, we could have 18, 19 uh, at night. So there is a big difference. Yeah, that's definitely a lot cooler. So what about winemaking? How has winemaking changed? Over the years, it seems to me like things are going back to more traditional ways of doing things from only doing French bariques to now people using much more of a mix of things and being open to different to amphora and all of these 
techniques, which originated in, well, probably Greece, but definitely were taken to another level in Italy by the Romans. So do you mm-hmm. see a big change in winemaking? Obviously, the better understanding of terroir is very important, but is there a big change in the winemaking techniques, in the education about winemaking? What do you see in Chianti Classico that has made things better? I think the philosophy now is to age wines in good oak and not for a longer time. I mean, as they used to do it, we don't want the concentration of oaky notes in the Chianti Classico. So you perceive the passage in oak. I think it's a good way of aging wines. And we don't use any high toasting for Chianti Classico because you don't need to feel the oak in Chianti Classico, especially because Sangiovese is quite delicate. It's not like Merlot and Cap Sav that really love to stay in oak for a while in very high toasting, and you get these big vanilla <laughs> aromas uh, on the nose or oaky. Sangiovese is something else. And I think now even wine producers, the most of them are understanding that. So oaky Chianti Classico is not a trend anymore, like used to be for instance, 10 years ago. And also because the blend was always done at that time with Merlot and Cap Sab. So it makes sense to age it longer with a higher toasting in barrels. But I think it's good. And this has helped also with the philosophy to go back to the origins by growing more Sangiovese than anything else. Robert Parker threw everybody for a big loop because people were just trying to make wines that would satisfy his palate and sell in the United States and in other places. And that changed a lot of the way people were making wine, but it's nice to see that people mm. are not doing that anymore. Are they still using large, the botti, the big barrels to do things? Or is that more in Montalcino? There are a lot of different uh, type of aging uh, according to each uh, single producer. But the trend now, anyway, is to keep in bigger cask, uh, the, the Chianti Classico, or uh, in Tonneau, not the barrels, uh, not the standard barrels. So it's always a matter of trend anyway, because in the wine the trends are going back and forth. So maybe in 10 years time, we're going to reuse the old barrels for the Chianti Classico. But <laughs> now I think they understand that they care about the markets, of course, but the wine producers care about the identity of their winery, which is very important. Let's talk about the identity and culture of Chianti Classico. I mean, you came back, you are a experienced winemaker, you have a degree and you decided not to continue on that path and to take another path. Being as open as you can, what's the culture of Chianti Classico? And is it really hard for someone who is trying to break in and start? How difficult is that to do? Is it very old and very stodgy, not open? What is it like? For you, I mean, you're a young winemaker, you're a woman winemaker, and it's been hard, right? Mm. So the mentality is still very 
traditional, <laughs> a bit narrow-minded, but it's not just the Chianti Classico, it's just the Tuscany, just Italy, which is that we are a little bit behind all the rest, not only in winemaking. <laughs> but anyway, it's, how can we say, it's not stodgy thanks to the new wineries coming. I mean, there are new producers, new wineries coming out in Chianti Classico, and I think they could change their philosophy and help uh, um, people like me going to the market. I think one thing that especially smaller wineries need to change uh, in Chianti Classico is uh, by always relied on uh, consultant winemakers. Right. Yeah, that's a big thing in Italy. Everyone uses Uh, a consultant winemaker. And I have (laughs) to assume that after a while, a lot of their wines taste similar, right? Even though everybody swears that their consultant does it differently. This is why people like me in Italy couldn't do their job. (laughs) Because we have these uh, consultant uh, winemakers that basically just ruined our generation. I've worked in Australia and of course I still keep track of what's happening there in the winemaking and they have, uh, I don't get the name in English now, a competition, a competition. It's called the Young Gun yes. of Winemaking. Yes, you know that, that? yes yeah. I, of course, yes. In, in Italy, it could be almost impossible to do that because <laughs> all the winemakers are uh, over 50 and it's completely crazy if you think about it because they should allow if uh, a small winery, a boutique winery come and say, okay, let's get rid of the consultant winemaking. We don't need it anymore. We have our own identity. It doesn't represent uh, our own identity. And uh, so just hire an internal winemaker where we could make things great. This would be my dream. (laughs) I don't know if it, it would ever happen. Let me ask you this. Did this go back to the whole thing that I was saying before that the English speaking press in particular has been very harsh on Italian wines. And so there's this sense of insecurity. Maybe they're not as good as the French wines. So they have to have the, of course, the French use consulting winemakers also, but do you think that there's some of this? Yeah. There's some of this like, oh my gosh, well, if we don't have this person, we're not going to be able to get into the market because I, I'm sorry, listeners, because I've said this multiple times that I read that book by Nicholas Belfarge, who was a master of wine. He passed away last year, who wrote a book on it, Tuscany and Central Italy, the wines of, uh, I can't remember exactly the title of it, but he was British and he went after the Brits and said, like, they have just killed the self-esteem, essentially, of all yeah. of the producers, especially of Tuscany, by saying, well, Italian is less than. It's not as good. Even if you compliment Italian wines or Chianti, then it's always like a little bit less good than even Barolo, which used to be owned by French. I think that it's really had a bad effect on the psychology of the culture, especially of Tuscany. I want you to explain a little bit more, though, how they have ruined the environment for you. Like, what is your ambition for being a winemaker? I would love to hear just like, what's your, what would you love to do if you could do anything? What would you be doing right now? If money wasn't an object and you could start where you were, what would you do? I would love to make my own wine. 
<laughs> it's, in uh, it's very bad. It's very basic, but not really, not even uh, owning uh, something and owning a winery. Just uh, do my job uh, as a winemaker. In Chianti Classico, you're saying? Yes, exactly. Yes. Doing okay. uh, without following. Uh, rules of someone else if you know what the i mean DOCG, which you the, yeah no 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 it's also the the fact that uh, it's crazy but here all the wineries have uh, an internal winemaker a winemaker who stays uh, on site and they have the consultant winemaker and all the poor people working every day in the winery, they're not allowed to decide anything because uh, we need to hear the opinion of the big uh, consultant winemaker. This is for me in 2023, it's just crazy. But th- there are all like that. It makes all the wine taste the same. Yeah, exactly. Because then uh, you're going to see the footprint uh, of uh, of each single consultant winemaker in uh, different wines, very different wines. This is, uh, I think, uh, the present. You're right. I mean, uh, even uh, the fact that they don't feel confident at all about that. I remember I was working for this winery when I was back in 16, and they told me we need to have the consultant winemaker because this brought us press, this brought us marketing, and this going to develop our wines. But for me, it's completely crazy. It's a very, I don't know how to say, but it's a very bad philosophy to continue going with that. It's a terrible idea for the region because it does not create any diversity. Is there any chance at all that Ava and Mm -hmm. your fiance and your friends who are feeling like this could help change the dynamics? So, you know, because you worked in New World countries, could there be a custom crush facility where you could make your own wines? Mm -hmm. Could there be something where there could be some excitement. I think personally, listening to you, I would drink anything you made. And I think there's an appetite and a market for what you're talking about, for own made without a consultant wines, especially from Chianti Classico, because I think the one thing that is widely recognized is that it is an amazing region and the terroir is fantastic. There's nobody saying that these are bad wines, but I think that the problem is they're they're too homogenized. And there's so much terroir here. You could do so many different things, yes, but it's disappointing. Exactly. So is there any chance of change? I feel a little bit skeptical about it, <laughs> but... Let's see. Let's start. Uh, I hope one day to have a few grapes by myself and do my own wine, maybe just for myself. It would be great anyway. It should change this conception, yeah, because it's uh, very... And some small wineries started to do that, especially because uh, these consultants were making have a very high cost. <laughs> they can charge whatever they want. And they can just have someone like you who has good ideas and who's creative. And especially, I want you so badly to make your own wine. And then I want to get you distribution here and just show everybody what you can do. I think there just has to be enough people like you, the smaller wineries who all these people, all these really talented people who can't do what they want to do. 
I think the other thing is like, I think when people hear that, they think, oh, they're going to do natural wine and it's going to taste horrible mm. or they're going <laughs> to, no. it's, it's not that it's that you understand terroir so deeply. You could make a wine from three or four different places. You can make different wines that would be such different expressions of the DOCG. And it would be so great. How disappointing. I'm really sad now. No, I'm sorry to make you sad, but it's the reality, not only in Tuscany, but even in Italy. So there are so many people with so much experience down there that they're just making a seller hands since uh, 10 years, which is crazy. I met a guy who has done the university with me, so he graduated in winemaking as well, and he was doing a, a job as a lifeguard on the beach, and I asked him, uh, Ah, okay. Do you change job? Why? I was just fed up of doing the seller hand with someone else who doesn't care about what I was thinking after having a study a lot. So it's dramatic a little bit, but it's the reality of Italy. It's like that. And they should change, but I don't know if maybe with the new generations of wine producers. I think it just takes a couple of people to find success and then there will be change. One thing I have seen, I will tell you this, if it makes you any more hopeful, is that there are a bunch of younger people who have taken over from their parents in different parts. Like I'm thinking of, um, there's a couple producers up in Barbaresco. There's a few mm -hmm. up in Alto Adige where this younger generation has taken over. These people are in their late 20s, early 30s, and they don't want to do what their parents did, or they want to continue to do what their parents did, but they don't want to have a consulting winemaker. They want to continue the traditions of their parents without having outside influence. And they are fighting somewhat against the idea that you need other people to come in and tell you what to do. So I think that it's happening, but it's slow. And the bigger problem is if you're not from a wine family and your yeah. parents don't own a winery, how do you convince a smaller winery to take you on and let you do something without the consultant? I just wonder if that might happen soon. I just wonder if I'm older than you as my generation takes over. We don't have the same ideas. I think we're much more independent thinking. It's just a different world of technology and tradition together. So perhaps it will change, but I hope you don't give up. And I know that you are starting to have a couple of vines yourself. Yeah, hope so. We hope to plant the few first vines here on our house. I think we calculate about 300 plants, not more, but it's a start, you know? You have and, to start uh, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And the best part is that this is the gift for my wedding proposal. Oh. Because, uh, yeah, when my fiancé proposed, we don't have any ring. Just told me and show me the map of our vineyard, our future vineyard. Uh -huh. So in, we need time, but I think in, in this winter time, we're going to plant the, the vines. So we are really happy. Okay. So we are going to be looking for your wines and you're going to come back on and Tenuta de Martinelli is going <laughs> to be our next venture. You're such a great personality and you've done all the right things. You know how to sell wine. 
and you know how to talk about wine and you know how to make wine. And I think that those elements will make someone like you super successful. I know everyone's listening to this rooting for you. And so I hope you come on again once you've gotten set up. Will you come back on the show? Yes, of course. It would be great for me. And thanks, Elizabeth. You're, you're making too much. <laughs> no, I not. I believe in you. I think you're going to be very successful, but I think you can't give up and you can't be a lifeguard. You can't do that. That's not your <laughs> that's not your role in this world. <laughs> Maybe you can hire him as a seller hand. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. It was an honor for me. And uh, if you love a place so much, it makes things easier, right? Uh, I really love Chianti Classico and I think my words <laughs> say that. And if you do have a list of small producers, send them over to me, even if it's just two or three, and I'll post it up and we can try to, or you want to say them now, people who you'd love to send business to, I would love to hear those. Yes, yes, I could send a list. And especially if you like to organize tours in, in Chianti Classico, I can give you some names about where to go in maybe boutique wineries that could be interesting in doing these kind of things. A hundred percent. And when I bring the patron group back next year, we're going to hire you out as the tour guide. <laughs> Separately. <laughs> Great. Okay. Why not? Thank you so much, Ava. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for normal people. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 